Hey, 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 everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. Joe Cotter and Susanna Greer are here. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. You good? I am amazing. How are you? I am happy today. So we spoke with, um, have you met our guest today? Have you ever met her before? We have never met in person, although I am super psyched to meet her. So I, I, hope, I hope you've we been get talking to about her work to me for for a while, going back. So I, I don't know why I thought you'd, well, you'd met her. I'm before. a big fan of her work. So right. There's that. Well, let let me let me tee it up. Yeah, let's tee it up. So we spoke with Dr. Gayathri Devi. She is at Duke University. She's program director for the Duke Consortium for Inflammatory Breast Cancer. And she's an associate professor of surgery and pathology at Duke School of Medicine. Another thing, pretty cool, there's an HBCU out near Durham, North Carolina Central University. And she is the director of the Duke North Carolina Central University Bridge Office as part of the Duke School of Medicine Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute. So inflammatory breast cancer, Susanna, uh, the dread disease we're talking about today. Yeah, I, I really have wanted to interview Gabe for so long because her lab is just at the cutting edge of studying this rare subtype of breast cancer. I wanted to get Gay's thoughts on why is inflammatory breast cancer so hard to treat, what her recent findings have been, how does she see treatment options expanding, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this podcast. Gay is an amazing scientist. She is so invested in her research. And you're, you're going to have to listen to the very end to hear um, how science can become very personal. Um, so let's let's dive right in. Good afternoon, Gay. How are you? Very good. Indeed, my pleasure to speak with you, Susanna. I'm so excited. And I know that you are at a meeting today. Uh, presenting and hearing some really wonderful science. So we're really just psyched and grateful that you stepped away from that to talk to us. So uh, if, you, if you're ready, we'll dive right in. Absolutely. All right, well, for our listeners, this is gonna be a new topic. So let's, let's back up a little bit. Today, we're gonna talk about inflammatory breast cancer and this is going to be a new new type of breast cancer for listeners to the podcast, and it's, it is a smaller fraction of breast cancers, and I think a type of breast cancer whose symptoms are less well-known. It's a disease that I, I would say, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, um, has received less attention. It really doesn't look like a typical breast cancer, so just educate us. What are the, the symptoms um, and signs of inflammatory breast cancer? Susanna, when one thinks of breast cancer, you probably picture a telltale lump. However, what if a self-exam or a mammogram could not detect your breast cancer? Inflammatory breast cancer, also commonly referred to as IBC, does not look or act like other types of locally advanced breast cancers. Most patients with IBC do not present with a single tumor mass in their breast. Instead, symptoms can include redness or patches of bruise-like features on the breast or chest walls that may actually come and go. Looks like dimpling or skin thickening. There may be breast swelling, 
many times just one breast is swollen, which can also feel warm, tender, painful. The nipple goes flat or inward. The other things one may notice are swollen lymph nodes under the arms or above the collarbone. A patient may have only one of these symptoms that I mentioned or all of them. In fact, the term inflammatory in IBC is a misnomer as it is not truly an inflammatory disease, but rather it reflects these skin changes that look like an inflammation or infection on the breast or chest walls. So the best way to confirm a diagnosis of IBC is through a skin biopsy of the affected breast. Oh, goodness, that's a lot. Okay, so yeah, you started to really, I think, educate us as to why this is going to be such a an interesting conversation because not only is this a type of breast cancer that many of us don't think about all the time, but you just described things that many women may see on their breast or feel all the time, <laughs> some of the time, right? I mean, you, you, you said that you could have redness on your breast or chest wall, things that come and go, they could be tender, you can have changes in your nipples, swollen lymph nodes. I mean, these are things that happened every month, um, maybe as you, you have your period or, and, and then you describe, and so it could be, it could be something, right? Or it could be, it could be nothing. Um, and then you, you, you said that these are characterized as skin changes and really the only way to know if this is truly um, this disease that we call inflammatory breast cancer or as you indicated IBC is with a biopsy. So so we're going to have a really cool conversation today. So I have one more question before we dive down a little deeper which is help us understand how else inflammatory breast cancer might differ from kind of what we think of or more common breast cancers. Maybe talk to me a little bit about like the average age of diagnosis and the aggressiveness typically of the disease. Absolutely, Susanna. And um, as such, breast cancer is not one disease, but rather a heterogeneous subtype, each clinically classified according to unique molecular and hormone receptor features. Inflammatory breast cancer is on the other hand, considered the most aggressive type of breast cancer that can present as any of the distinct hormonal subtypes. But a diagnosis, IBC is already at stage three or higher. In fact, almost 30% of IBC patients have metastatic disease at diagnosis compared to maybe about 5% of non-inflammatory breast cancers. Now, you did mention that some of the symptoms I talked about seemed very common, but that's not exactly true uh, because some of these symptoms that the women experience are sustained and quite painful. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that there's something going on in contrast to your regular changes in your breast during your, maybe your monthly cycle or during postmenopausal or menopausal time. Now let's talk a little bit about patient characteristics or what we know right now. IBC patients tend to be younger than other breast cancer patients with an average age of approximately 55 years. In particular, IBC is more prevalent 
in premenopausal women across all ethnicities. This is indeed different than other types of breast cancers. In fact, IBC signs and symptoms like tenderness, redness, itching, mimic mastitis, a commonly observed breast infection or inflammation that can occur during pregnancy or breastfeeding. And younger patients are often treated with antibiotics, delaying cancer workup, dramatically affecting survival outcomes. This is something we'll touch upon later during our conversation. Now, although rare in incidence, IBC accounts for 10% of all breast cancer deaths. It is also an emerging global health disparity. Incident rates in different regions of the world vary considerably with disproportionately higher incidence in Africa. For example, it is 5% in Morocco, 11% in Egypt, and in the Middle East. In the United States, inflammatory breast cancer accounts for 10% of all breast cancers in African-American women, compared to about 6% for white women and 5% for other ethnic groups. In addition to a higher incidence, IBC in Black is less likely to respond to treatment and more likely to progress to lethal metastatic disease compared to IBC in other ethnicities and corresponds with worse survival outcomes. Therefore, NIH has designated IBC as a cancer health disparity. Now, there are also several discrete risk factors that have recently come in the forefront for IBC. One of them is high body mass index, especially in premenopausal women, has been found to be associated with an increased risk for IBC compared to other types of advanced breast cancers. The other interesting factor is related to reproductive history. It has been found that women who have an earlier age of endonarchy or first period, earlier birth or first child, less gap between multiple pregnancies, seems to be a higher risk of being diagnosed with IBC. Furthermore, it has been discovered in a study that sometimes even breastfeeding for more than 24 months duration could potentially increase the risk of IBC diagnosis, although this needs to be studied further. But on all in all, all of these show that IBC is inexplicably opposite uh, in terms of other types of non-inflammatory advanced breast cancers. All these converge on one area, changes in the mammary gland or breast that are conducive to tumor cells forming and growing is probably one of the most important factors in inflammatory breast cancer. So let's talk a little bit more about that, that changes in the mammary gland that are conducive to tumors growing are kind of what we're beginning to think about leading to inflammatory breast cancer cell growth or development? Because you've given us a lot to think about. We've talked about IBC being really incredibly aggressive, that you said it's already at stage three or higher at diagnosis, that it has these sustained painful symptoms. Typically, it's going to be a younger woman, um, a, a premenopausal woman, um, who is diagnosed and that these women are less likely to respond 
to treatment and that that we see a significant disparity in in women. So I think what you're leading us to is beginning to think about maybe some of the clinical features of inflammatory breast cancer. Um, and the last thing that we talked about is what is happening actually in the breast and in the mammary gland that that lead to all of these um, really challenging features of this type of cancer. So is that is that a fair summary of our conversation so far? Absolutely. And um, the question always that is that arises, whether it's a patient or um, a scientist or a clinician is, how is IBC different? Because if we know how it is different, how it is progressing, there is where we can find ways to uh, manage it, to find treatment strategies. So your question is absolutely true that there are some unique aspects of inflammatory breast cancer clinical feature. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit with our audience who doesn't think about inflammatory breast cancer all the time. So you're, you, you do, and your lab does, along with lots of other scientists. So one clinical feature that inflammatory breast cancer has that does make it resistant to therapies that we use in other types of breast cancer is this really interesting feature that instead of having this one single tumor mass, so a group of cells that's found all together, IBC patients have lots of little groups of tumor cells um, that can be found in the breast and actually in other areas near the breast, right? So in the skin and in the lymph nodes. And these small groups of cells are called emboli. So can you tell us a little bit more about these groups of cells? I mean, do we, do we know why they form? So coming back to the same um, um, discussion that we started with, what does an IBC patient look like when they present at the clinic? So the patient typically presents with a rash-like, reddish, purplish, swollen, highly painful breast. This unique clinical presentation is because the IBC tumor cells appear as diffuse clusters on the skin. Remember I said that you usually do not find a single tumor mass. It's right. because of these diffuse clusters on the skin. And these clusters of tumor cells predominantly move or spread collectively through the dermal or the skin lymphatic vessels. And this feature is mm. termed tumor emboli, uh, which actually can be evaluated and is evaluated uh, in tumor samples uh, collected at diagnosis, uh, biopsy, surgical samples, and is considered the single most important clinical histopathological hallmark of inflammatory breast cancer. Okay, so that's what is causing the rash. So are, are these groups of, of cells, these actually small groups of tumor cells are causing this painful rash? So that makes sense. So do we, do we know why they've actually formed in this way? 
instead of forming one big tumor, you have all these tiny little tumors that form. Do we know why that is? So good or bad, you would agree, Susanna, there is power in collectivity. In cancer right. biology, when tumor cells of epithelial origin lift off and start migrating, they cannot survive as single cells when they're not attached. And so they need to change. And this phenomenon is oftentimes called and referred to as epithelial to mesenchymal transition, or EMT, uh, that happens in many cancers, including breast cancer. However, the inflammatory breast cancer tumor cells have been shown to retain this epithelial characteristic and also gain other features, including mesenchymal and stem-like properties, which make them highly proliferative and invasive. A um, couple of years back, uh, we, in collaboration with investigators at Rice University, published a paper in PNAS evaluating this mechanism of inflammatory breast cancer tumor cell plasticity and identifying associated targets. Now, if we throw out for a minute the various scientific labels like EMT plasticity that I used and put it in lay terms, the tumor emboli is able to resist the body's natural defenses, including the immune cells present in the lymphovascular system and evade cell death. Hmm. That is why they form. So basically, these, these cells are just kind of a mess, right? So these IBC clusters, these emboli, are they're just pretty terrible because you said they can proliferate, which means they can divide a lot and normal cells don't do that. Normal non-cancerous cells can't divide indefinitely, but these clusters of IBC cells, these emboli do. And they also, you said they can metastasize, which means they can move around the body and set up shop in other places, which is, I, I guess, why you said that they form not only in the breast, but also in other areas around the breast, like the skin and lymph nodes, and they cause these really painful rashes. And that's why this is the single most important like diagnostic used for inflammatory breast cancer. So, but they also make IBC really resistant to treatment. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Why do these emboli make inflammatory breast cancer so hard to treat and also able to to move around the body and metastasize, which I, I, is the biggest problem that we're dealing with here, is that patients are diagnosed so late. Susanna, you have touched upon a subject area that is of uh, in, immense interest uh, in my research for a very long time, which is the area called programmed cell death. I'm sure many of your listeners will be surprised to hear that about 300 million cells die every minute in our bodies, and that is a good thing. Our body uses this mechanism called programmed cell death or apoptosis to continuously rid of cells that have been damaged beyond repair. Programmed cell death is a necessity for us to survive. Therefore, it also plays a role in preventing cancer. In fact, many anti-cancer drug treatments like chemotherapy and radiation activate programmed cell death signals to kill tumor cells. However, it seems the inflammatory breast cancer tumor emboli or the tumor clusters 
have gained features that allow them to overcome this natural cell death process. And it also allows for them then to resist cancer treatment and continue to metastasize. All right. So we have a significant problem here. We have these terrible cells that can divide indefinitely. They've overcome this natural and necessary process of cell death, and they can move around the body and set up shop in other places. And so if if we don't really understand why they are so successful at overcoming these natural processes, then one other way to treat inflammatory breast cancer would be to, I guess, stop the whole thing in the beginning, right? To stop the emboli from forming. And I think that's the approach that your lab has taken, right? If we if we don't really understand how these clusters of cells have become so terrible, um, perhaps we could just stop them at the source. If we know that the rash, this painful rash is the, the absolute hallmark of the disease, um, it's caused by these cells. So that's what your lab is working on. It's, it's, it, it's the, you study how these cells form, how these clusters form, and you, you study the environment and that they form in, um, and that happens in the breast. So I'd love, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about that and about maybe how you got that idea and why you think the environment in the breast is so important. This is the million-dollar question, Susanna, and a potential answer probably lies to differentiate IBC from other advanced breast cancers. Although clinical characteristics differ significantly between inflammatory breast cancer and other types of advanced breast cancers, genomic analysis, in fact, over 50-plus studies have been published to date as part of an international effort to understand these differences but they have been unable to identify any specific tumor cell intrinsic molecular explanation for this collective invasive phenotype and accelerated growth that we see in IBC. On the other hand, an explanation for the aggressive biology of inflammatory breast cancer may be found in the host response. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests this, including our own data where we see an activation of a chronic inflammatory signaling pathway. And one of them is called this nuclear factor kappa B or NF kappa B signaling pathway uh, that controls inflammation and immune activation and a corresponding increase in expression of proteins that inhibit or suppress program cell death. That is, these are anti-cell death or anti-apoptotic proteins. The roots of this chronic inflammation and ineffective immune response may actually lie in the host-related inflammatory risk factors uh, in uh, inflammatory breast cancers that I mentioned before. And some of these are obesity, higher BMI, early age at first pregnancy, lack of breastfeeding, multiple pregnancies with limited lag time between them. In fact, all these factors are also precursors for increased chronic stress or inflammatory state 
in the mammary gland. This, you can envision, becomes prime real estate for a tumor to develop when there is a second hit, as we call it, or a mutational burden, or, an, or a tumor-initiating environmental stimuli. So all of this comes together, and that, this is why it's very important to also take into account the breast environment and the host um, cellular stress situation uh, when it comes to understanding not only inflammatory breast cancer, but how these tumor cells are able to avoid the normal process of programmed cell death, which actually protects us each and every day from getting cancer. This is really interesting. So you, you've led us down this cool story and we're circling back to these, I don't know, it's always so interesting and terrible to me at the same time when we think about cancers um, and we think about what we're trying to target. And in this place, what you're telling us is that we're going to go back to the source, which is the breast tissue, and really think about the environment. And so I I want to understand what kind of therapeutic options could we use that would actually block the formation of these emboli, right? Because that's what you're telling us we would have to do is to actually suppress inflammation in the breast that would keep these cells from ever forming um, and moving around um, the body. So talk to us about that. Absolutely. And I think what I want to do is step back a little bit and tell you a little bit about what is happening and what we know in the breast microenvironment, um, what kind of clinically relevant data that we have, which could then inform us about um, how to target them. I'm sorry, Gay, really quickly, before we go on, can you remind our listeners what the microenvironment is? Just help us explain that term a little bit. Absolutely. Every organ in our body lives in a small little environment, just like we all live in a small house, in a house. So you can almost think of an organ has various cells, and they, these could be various rooms of the, um, of the house, and, um, and, and the whole thing makes up the organ's microenvironment. Um, so for example, uh, you have multiple organs, and then they become the whole body. So that becomes a sort of like a body's environment on its own, but the organ itself has its own microenvironment, which has the blood vessels, which has immune cells, uh, which has um, various types of organ-specific cells in at various stages. Um, some cells are new; they're being um, they're being developed. Some adult cells are already there; they are dying. And so it's a very dynamic environment, and that is what we call a microenvironment. And of course, as a human being or as any, any living organism, we also live in our macroenvironment, which means uh, the outside factors in our environment. Um, that could be uh, where we live, uh, that those could be modifiable factors, they could be non-modifiable factors, uh, and so on and so forth. So interestingly, our breast microenvironment is uh, very adept and it constantly adapts in response to various inflammation induced by various changes, uh, intrinsic and extrinsic signals and stress signals. And when I mean, what I mean by that is that 
as we know, uh, the female breast is co constantly undergoing various hormonal changes uh, during each time of the month or even daily for that matter. Sure. So an example, uh, which is very important again to consider, and I keep going back to the process of cell death, and you almost might think I'm very morbid in my thought process, but it just amazes me how cell death is critical during every menstrual cycle and during also the mammary gland involution, which is a process where the breast changes during and post-pregnancy and during and post-lactation. There is a term for these stress and inflammation-induced changes that regulate the body's ability to get rid of bad cells, like I was talking before. And this term is called adaptive stress response. So this is a very important term in my research um, and in our endeavor to find why certain cancers are able to adapt and resist treatment, why some cancer cells are able to evade cell death and uh, keep growing. Therefore, any dysregulation in the adaptive stress response could potentially foster tumor formation. And then, of course, in, in case of the inflammatory breast cancer scenario, it can foster the tumor emboli formation in the breast microenvironment. So basically, there are some adaptations happening in the breast microenvironment when these adaptive stress response are not happening in the right direction, or there is a dysregulation, or there's an abnormality, then immediately the tumor finds, like I was saying, the prime real estate and can then start integrating and finding a space in the breast microenvironment. I, yeah, I never would have thought about the breast as being a place that's just ripe for tumor formation, but you're, you're exactly right. It's a place where a ton of cell death happens. And if, if that process doesn't happen, it's, it's a, a, a great fertile ground for tumors. Absolutely. And you could, you could argue that many of our other organs in our body also go through similar kind of, you know, constant adaptation, which is how we are able to survive and um, uh, fight many infections and many inflammation. But then there are certain organs like breast, which also are constantly evolving and changing because of the, of the nature of their function. So my postulate is, improving therapeutic and survival outcome for inflammatory breast cancer patients will require identifying the adaptive stress response pathways by which the chronic stress milieu or the chronic stress factors in the breast microenvironment can actually end up promoting this aggressive inflammatory breast cancer phenotype. So it's sort of almost like a threshold and when is this balance tipped in the wrong direction? So I'll give you an example here and talk a little bit about our research findings that are clinically relevant. A key finding recently in my laboratory was when we identified and characterized this adaptive stress response pathway. You know, what are the components of this adaptive stress response? And we identified that the components bridge program cell death to a key inflammatory or immune suppressive pathway, which I think I alluded to before, the nuclear factor, kappa B, the NF-kappa B signaling. 
And specifically, we discovered the importance of this protein called X-linked inhibitor of apoptosis protein, or simply XIAP. It is considered the most potent uh, inhibitor of programmed cell death. It actually is very important in our body because otherwise the cells will just continue to die. So in a normal scenario, you need XIAP to control abnormal, uncontrolled cell death. But then the tumors here, the tumor emboli, we found out, are potentially using this particular protein to their advantage. So what we did was we hypothesized this, and we wanted to um, test if our hypothesis was indeed true. So for this, we were able to uh, assay and characterize a large number of um, inflammatory breast cancer patient biospecimens, tumor biospecimens, and compare it to um, matched non-inflammatory breast cancer biospecimens that were of the same stage and hormonal subtype, you know, just to make sure everything is controlled. And what we identified, and we were the first to demonstrate, that indeed there was elevated expression of this anti-cell death protein XIAP, specifically in invasive breast cancer tumors compared to normal or early stage like ductal carcinoma in situ or even early stage breast cancers. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, we found that not only XIAP, but its partner in crime, the NF-kappa-B, Ha, uh, well, protein was also specifically overexpressed in the inflammatory breast cancer tumor emboli that we were able to isolate in these tumor biospecimens. So this was a cover article that um, got a lot of press uh, back in 2017, um, published in the journal OncoTarget, and truly jump-started some of our work um, that, of course, has also been supported by American Cancer Society, where now we have actually gone on to show that high XIP expression correlates with poor event-free survival and high level of lymph node involvement, which is a bad thing in breast cancer. You know, you and patients have high level of lymph node positivity. And this was actually published uh, a couple of years back in Cancer Research. So in fact, today at the uh, San Antonio breast cancer meeting that I'm attending, and we're all very excited. This is after two years. Uh, this is the first time it is an in-person meeting. Uh, we are presenting a poster with new data set that identifies association of high levels of XIAP um, with immunosuppressive factors. So when I say immunosuppressive factors, immune cells that actually um, suppress and uh, cell death and actually um, promote tumor cells to keep growing. And we find that there is a correlation between XIAP and these immunosuppressive factors in inflammatory breast cancer tumor tissue. Of course, you know, we do have a lot more work to do to further validate and confirm these findings. But this is definitely an example of showing how there is this constant interaction between the breast microenvironment 
and the tumor cells. And it's, there is a fight that keeps happening and mm-hmm. a balance uh, that can be dysregulated because of this adaptive stress response. Well, congratulations. I mean, it's a, I think it's a really wonderful thing to show our listeners the journey of a finding and how that leads to therapeutic interventions. You mentioned that your first finding that XIAP is overexpressed, and for our listeners, that means too much. So that means there's way too much X of this protein, XIAP, uh, found in these emboli. And you said that it's partner in crime, which is another protein, NF-kappa B. There's way too much of it there, too. And that together, you've shown, and I think you said this was in 2017, so about four years ago, that patients who had, from patient biopsies, uh, the most of these two bad players had the worst outcomes. Um, So they had the lower levels of, lower rates of survival and greater levels of lymph node involvement. And for our listeners, that means um, that, you know, the, the emboli had spread beyond the breast to the tumors. So that's four years ago, and now you're showing us, so you're beginning to move further, and you said you have a poster at a breast cancer meeting in San Antonio where you're saying, well, why is, what else is happening? So you know these cells have proteins that are helping them to survive, but they're also getting help from other cells in the breast cancer environment, and what you shared with us today, so hot off the presses, is that there are immune cells there that seem to be helping these emboli to grow, so promoting their survival. Um, so it's a double hit, a double hit in favor of the tumor. So I guess the, one of the last questions I have is then, how do we approach that therapeutically? So you've had these two kind of basic science observations that the, these emboli have one thing going for them that's great, right? They have these proteins that help them to divide. Um, they have another thing going for them in the breast environment that there are immune cells there that are promoting their growth. So then how do we target that therapeutically? Absolutely. So my research is grounded in the belief that great strides can be made in cancer research only and only if we have specific uh, models that mimic both patients' tumor biology and the environment. This is so critical because there is a lack of tumor bioassessment. There's so much tumor heterogeneity, specifically like in cancers like breast. There are various modifiable and non-modifiable genetic and environmental factors that we don't necessarily understand that are related to an individual patient. All of these pose significant challenges. Um, so in particular, I've also learned over this long period of researching in a rare cancer field is that if it is a rare cancer, and if it's a cancer that displays health disparities, example, being inflammatory breast cancer, then the challenges are myriad. So not to belabor, but due to the diffuse nature of the IBC disease, it is extremely difficult for us to obtain tumor tissue with adequate numbers of dermal tumor emboli. In fact, Susanna, you you mentioned that we identified this back in 2017, and then we also published again in 2018. But each time, the amount of 
difficulties that we faced in finding truly designated, well-characterized, well-annotated, where a pathologist can say, yes, this is IBC tumor, you have enough tumor tissue to be able to study this, have been a major challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been able to collaborate with um, investigators both nationally and internationally. We formed the Duke Inflammatory Breast Cancer Consortium that I lead uh, in uh, end of 2014. And over the years, we have been able to develop some IBC registries and ability to develop um, documentation where we can share some of our findings and tissues between various laboratories, which itself is a major challenge. So I have come up with a phrase that I coined called the 3M approach. And so the M in the 3M stands for models, mechanisms, and measures. So the M is models and measures, mechanisms and measures. This honestly, I coined because it helped me attract trainees and also to interest collaborators from different disciplines, because a lot of people are not necessarily very excited to work when we say that we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough tissue. Uh, But this was uh, a way for me to encourage multidisciplinary collaboration toward a simple goal. Can we make IBC simulation models? What I mean by that, can we make simple models in our lab that can mimic this patient characteristic of the skin um, diffuse nature of the tumor, the tumor emboli. And so first and foremost, uh, in collaboration with uh, Dr. Mark Dewhurst at Duke and um, Dr. Kevin Williams at North Carolina Central University, we started to develop certain new methodologies. And one of them that has gained um, a lot of ground and is now being used um, quite effectively in screening for drugs is a high content multiparametric assay that um, we've also been able to, in my lab, develop a novel uh, bioreactor where we can now actually grow these tumor emboli in the laboratory and then study that invasion by simulating a lymphatic microenvironment that a patient has in their breast. So this is really exciting work Mm -hmm. that could not have been possible without collaborations with biomedical engineers, with clinicians, with um, basic biologists. And um, currently I have a couple of patents under review And in parallel, we are also developing unique uh, transgenic mice models where we are trying to make the lymphatic vessels and tumor cells fluoresce different colors. So you may have a green tumor cell and red lymphatic vasculature, so the mouse actually glows. And you can see how the tumors, after you implant them in the mouse breast tissue can actually travel and where does it go? And then we can maybe treat them with different drugs. So using both these models, one is an ex vivo model. So it is basically um, not a model that has any live animal or, uh, but the other one is a live animal model. Using both these models, 
which of course excites our students who are always uh, amazed to see these images, uh, we are able to now really decipher what is the mechanism by which these tumor emboli grow, form, and then start to invade uh, collectively. Wow, Gate. So I, you know, you've probably never thought about it this way, but I feel like you're a bit of a emboli yourself. Um, you, I've, as I was sitting there listening to you, I feel like you, you were your own three M's. You are moving in all these really wonderful directions where you're becoming so multidisciplinary, finding all these great collaborators. I, I just love it. Um, so congratulations to you and um, for a rare disease that just needs so much more focus um, and so much more money. There's my other M. Um, patients and uh, their caretakers are, are just so incredible, grateful, grateful to you. And I would say the third M for, for me, for you, is your mindset. Um, you were just so opportunistic and such a big thinker and uh, we're just incredibly grateful for all the work that you and your colleagues um, and trainees are doing. So I have just two follow-up questions and then I'm gonna let you get back to your meeting, um, which I guess is a fourth M that you're there sharing your fantastic work today. So if you could just think five years ahead, if you could wave a magic anti-IBC wand, um, where would you be and where would the field be in five years? I honestly believe we are holding this wand right now, but how we use it to make tsunami-like waves toward groundbreaking discoveries uh, that can lead to risk mitigation strategies and treatments with improved quality of life is a challenge and the marching order. Um, what I believe is important to note that collectively this work can also in parallel have an enormous impact to identify therapeutic targets for metastatic cancers in general. This is actually grounded in the fact that lymphovascular invasion and the ability of tumor cells to evade immune-mediated cell death are actually the first key steps in the metastatic cascade of any cancer. So if we can understand and identify biomarkers like the adaptive stress response factors, we can actually apply to other cancers. And this could also be a very economical approach. As you know, rare cancers face specific challenges despite the high collective occurrence of rare cancers, in fact, one-fifth of all cancer cases in the U.S. are de designated rare, the individual low incidence and, in many cases, geographic dispersion of the patients with a rare cancer leads to difficulties in running clinical trials. We cannot run well-powered, statistically significant, multi-institutional clinical trials because it, there is no money there. Uh, large companies are not interested in some of these um, clinical trials and funding because there is a huge deterrent in terms of recruiting patients, the time it takes um, in order to get into drug approval. A few years back, we actually made a tremendous discovery where we identified an alcohol abuse drug, which is actually FDA approved and considered safe. It's called antabuse or disulfiram. It has been used for the last 50 plus years. It is cheap and can be distributed in uh, less well-developed areas of the world. And my team actually identified that antabuse or disulfiram can be used to treat inflammatory breast cancer. 
We even have a patent that has been issued for this. But it is the generic drug. There is no money to be made. It's an absolute deterrent in funding clinical trials. So these challenges can be further exacerbated if the cancer is more prevalent in a specific minority or underserved, uh, underserved community, leading to significant health disparity. So there is a dire need for advocacy and philanthropic dollars. And I love you, the, word, the word you use, another M for money, <laughs> and a need for a global push. All right, Gay. I'd love to know what impact that your ACS funding has had on this area of research. So we're still in the middle of a challenging time that has left some kind of devastating mark on everyone. It has also revealed how one disease can affect the care of patients with other diseases. However, I believe it is a timely example that has shown how a unified and loud global voice can generate funds to accelerate discoveries like the COVID vaccine. So I can say with no doubt whatsoever that the reason I was able to focus my research in inflammatory breast cancer is because of my first funding from ACS, the ACS Research Scholar Grant that I received back in 2008. As a junior faculty establishing my laboratory and clinical research in a competitive ac academic environment and institution, most of my colleagues and publishers cautioned me to avoid this area of rare diseases and health disparities. ACS Scholar Grants are, of course, considered prestigious awards, which was a tremendous boost to my career, but it also gave my fledgling lab street cred and brought about national and international attention to this understudied and underfunded cancer. Most importantly, this ACS funding helped me recruit students, and over the years, I have tailored these educational activities for basic translational and clinical research projects related to not only IBC, but also rare cancers and cancer health disparity. Another very important distinction I want to share with the listeners about ACS is that it is not just a grant funding entity, but one that has allowed us to build efforts for science to community. You know, often people use the word bench to bedside to curbside, but in my mind, it is not that linear. So my research mantra has been additional one extra word there, bedside to bench to curbside and back. Hmm. It is to highlight that I want to formulate the bench research design or hypothesis based on what is happening at the clinic and in the community. And of course, subsequently, these endpoints and data sets have the potential to inform clinical care. This is ambitious. But in the past decade, the incredible opportunity to work with members of ACS Foundation and your working groups, both locally in North Carolina and other states, uh, having served as an ACS scientist reviewer myself, um, ACS members have participated in our uh, IBC meetings at Duke. And in fact, recently, uh, we had a community engagement session where we addressed issues related to IBC awareness and misdiagnosis, which was published uh, with a co-author, Ms. Cynthia Serna, who actually uh, just retired, uh, having served on the ACS Action Network. So this shows the power of collaboration between academia and foundation uh, for science to community efforts. Gay, okay, many of our listeners are cancer survivors, 
cancer patients and caregivers. Is there a message that you would like to share with these listeners in particular? Susanna, if it's okay, I'm going to get a bit personal here with your listeners to tell my story and highlight how lack of awareness, delay, or misdiagnosis is a key area that absolutely needs more patient engagement and innovative community-engaged research practices and funds to do so. I'm indeed lucky to be a cancer researcher at a premier academic medical institution and to also live in a highly educated community with engaged patient advocates and stakeholders with me. However, in the last two years, my family experienced cancer firsthand, and boy, has that grounded me. I was myself diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer that is quite uncommon in my age bracket, and it could have gone undetected if not for the fact that I work in this field and have access to top medical care. This helped in my own early diagnosis, and of course, after excruciating surgeries and other treatments during COVID, I now have a favorable prognosis and pretty excited about it. However, we were not done yet. Recently, my mother, who I have not been able to see in person, she splits her time between India and US and has been stuck in India when COVID hit. And due to my own treatment, she was starting to have some symptoms. And uh, you know, as all mothers do, did not want to burden me with what she was going on. So Susanna, you must be wondering now, what symptoms am I talking about? All those I listed when we start talking today. So my mom was consulting via telemedicine and despite being a highly educated and independent woman, was hesitating to get on a video call to show her breath where the redness or swelling was starting to happen. So yeah, she was getting IBC mm-hmm. and none of the known risk factors, demographics, age, she is 73 years old, were relevant in her case. She was prescribed antibiotics, and of course, that had no improvement. In fact, just the prescription of antibiotics itself was a huge uh, problem because a woman who was postmenopausal at her age, uh, there is no indication of mastitis, which is actually a phenomena that happens in younger women during pregnancy and lactation. Long story short, when she finally shared with me, I was able to get her to a high BC specialist. And again, I was lucky because I have IBC specialists and researchers as my friends. Um, she is now under the best possible care and undergoing treatment, and we are hoping for a good outcome. However, I felt this was important for me to share publicly as I consider American Cancer Society as an extended family. So so to all who are listening, I'll say cancer or for that matter, any ailment is personal. I still have moments when it hits me that despite my work in this area, numerous talks I've given and access to care um, on rare cancer, a rare cancer went undetected in my family and another rare cancer was barely detected on time, and how COVID itself impacted many of my decisions where maybe we could have done more, that question remains. So for now, I have coined a term for myself, scientists (laughs) survive. So we all have to find ways that is most meaningful in this fight to eradicate cancer. And And if cure is not an option, make it a chronic manageable disease with quality of life. 
that is not one size fits all approach. I actually want to end on a very positive note, Susanna, because I'm, a, I'm um, an optimist. And as you were initially saying, also somewhat of an opportunist when it comes to cancer research. Inflammatory breast cancer was historically a uniformly fatal disease. By the implementation of multifactorial treatments with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, and with this current knowledge and research to understand what is the reason for this disease to be so different than other breast cancers, has greatly improved survival over the past two decades. In fact, I have two breast cancer advocates in my group who have beaten this disease and who are continually um, looking to uh, live with a better quality of life. So today, I thank American Cancer Society and its donors for your part partnership in what I call Rare to Care Endeavor and all the listeners today for your time. And thank you, Susanna and Joseph. Thank you so much, Kay. And I'll add another M to our three, and that is mentor. What a wonderful story you shared. I'm sure everyone is as moved as I am. Um, all my best to you and to your mom, to your family, and to your colleagues as you continue to do your wonderful work. Um, and um, best wishes for good health. Thank you, Susanna, and a big shout out to my mom. Keep smiling, and thanks to my team <laughs> and all the collaborators. 